Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals. CBC run a wide range of courses covering a variety of topics and genres. If you're interested in bringing your true stories to the page, why not join their six-week online writing a memoir course with exclusive teaching videos, resources, and writing tasks from best-selling author Kathy Rensenbrink. By the end of the course, you'll have written at least the first 3,000 words of your memoir and developed a plan for the rest of the book. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert non-fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of writing a memoir or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to the journalist, author and filmmaker, Sebastian Junger. We spoke with Sebastian about his smash hit debut, The Perfect Storm, his time as a war reporter in the Balkans and Afghanistan, and his latest book, Freedom. Don't be alarmed if you can hear Sebastian's little one, or indeed his cat, at some point during the interview. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. So Sebastian, welcome to Always Take Notes. Really great to have you on the show. I wanted to start by asking about Freedom, by your about your latest book. So could you tell us a bit about where this project, both the the walking on the the railroads came from and then how it how it evolved into the book and what some of the ideas you were hoping to address in Freedom were? Yeah, so about eight or nine years ago, I, I decided to take a couple of combat veterans that I knew. That's my little girl in the background, in case you're wondering. Uh, take a couple of combat veterans that I knew and a journalist, a Spanish photographer named Guillermo, uh, who was with my one of my best friends as he was dying in Libya. Tim Hetherington was my colleague on my film Restrepo and a good friend and a brother, and he was killed in, in the city of Misrata in Libya, and Guillermo was with him in the back of the pickup truck as he, as he died. So I got to be very good friends with Guillermo, and so I took these three guys, and we started walking from Washington, D.C., along the railroad lines, and we went, we went north to Philadelphia, and then instead of continuing to New York, where I, where I live, uh, we decided to turn west and head for Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania. We chose the railroad lines because they're, they're, they're these sort of swaths of no man's land that just cut ribbons through America and you're, they're totally un, sort of unmonitored, uh, ungoverned in a way uh, and you know they're dangerous but you can sort of do what you want out there. We were sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings and cooking our dinner over fires and getting our water out of creeks and you know railroad line goes right through the middle of everything. The farms, the ghettos, industrial barrens, the suburbs, like everything. So we were seeing America from the inside out and, and essentially vagrants. And we were on the sort of wrong side of the law, basically, and had to, you know, it wasn't combat, but there were things about it that reminded us a little bit of combat in some nice ways, actually. Just that alertness and sense of being in the moment and very, very tired. It was brutal. We carried everything we needed 
and uh, we got food as we went. We'd go through towns and get food and keep going out onto the lines. We had to dodge the police. So we did that over the course of a year, and I realized, like, it was in some ways some of the, maybe the freest I'd ever been. I mean, every night, we were the only people who knew where we were, like under what bridge we were sleeping and what abandoned building we were sleeping. We were the only people who knew where we were, and that is a, that's one definition of freedom. It's a sort of nomad's definition of freedom, and it's one that I became very fond of. So then, you know, some years ago, I started, I'd written a book called Tribe, uh, basically about human community and how it works and what are the consequences when you lose it, which is the case for most modern societies. They have lost those communitarian connections that keep, that you really buffer people from all kinds of psychological and physical hardships. And we've lost those. So, you know, one's tribe, one's people, one's family, it's something that humans all over the world will risk their lives for, will die for, to protect. And the other thing that humans will die for is their own freedom and the freedom of, of their the people they love. But it's one of these words that it's very, very hard to define. And it's misused horribly in the political conversation. And so I just thought, I want to write a book about freedom and how it works and how it is that humans, and we're unique in this way, uh, humans can defeat in combat, can maintain their autonomy, their ability to be self-defining in the face of a more powerful foe. So in every other species, including chimpanzees that are our, our closest relatives in the animal kingdom, um, the larger individual wins the fight, you know, typically a sort of alpha, dominant alpha male, or the larger coalition, the larger army, the, you know, wins can defeat a, a smaller coalition. And in humans, that's not true. An individual, a smaller individual can beat a larger individual in a one-on-one -on -one fight, and insurgencies defeat empires all the time. In fact, America just experienced that with the Taliban after a bitter 20-year fight. That's unique to humans, and that is what gives us access to what we call freedom. If the big guy always won, we would be a top-down, a global top-down hierarchy. We would not be free in the sense that we mean the word that we cherish. Uh, so I wanted to write a book about how that works, and it's divided into three sections, run, fight, and think. The first way to, to stay out of the clutches of a powerful foe was to run away. And usually um, more mobile, you know, the, the, the sort of less powerful you are, the more mobile you are. It, there's, a, there's a direct connection between those things. Uh, if, running, if, you, if you can't outrun your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight him. And that's where this interesting dynamic comes in, where smaller insurgencies or individuals, they have disadvantages, but they also have advantages that don't really get taken into account. And then finally, if you can't outfight your oppressor, you're going to have to outthink them. And that's what the labor movement did um, 100 years ago in, in the United States around the, the steel mills, the textile mills, the Irish up, uprising of 1916, eventually in the 1920s. That worked. They threw off the, you know, so they threw off the, 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 the British Empire that was only 50 miles away off their coast. They threw them out of Ireland. They basically made occupation so costly that the British Empire withdrew voluntarily, just like U.S. did in, in Afghanistan. So, you know, without all of those, you know, without those, that ability, we would not be able to be free. And that's, 
that is what the book is about. Was it the plan from the beginning then to include these diversions or digressions into history, anthropology and sociology alongside your own journey along the railroad tracks? You know, the, the journey along the railroad tracks, when I started writing my book, Freedom, I didn't even think about that. I wasn't going to be part of the book. That was a sort of afterthought. You know, I just asked myself the question. If I, well, I, said, I thought to myself, if I do the book as envisioned, it's, it's a fairly history heavy, anthropology heavy work. I wonder if there's something that can sort of bring it alive a little bit. And then I asked myself the question, what's the freest you've ever been? Completely depends on how you define that word. But uh, in sort of raw physical terms, I came up with the freest you've ever been is the time in your life when no one knew where you were. And uh, and that was a sort of ir- an irresistible idea. And so I decided to incorporate that into the book. But it was sort of, you know, late in the game. Could we roll back now to the, the start of your career and where you first identified an interest in, in writing or in, in literature. And I was wondering, did your your kind of family background have a role here? I saw you writing this piece you did in Time magazine about your father and how he fled from from Spain and things like that. I mean, wh- where did this, this all start for you? My father grew up in Europe. Uh, he was born in Germany. His father was Jewish. They left Germany uh, after the Reichstag fire as things started to turn ugly. Uh, they went to Spain. Uh, my gr- My father's father was part Spanish. Uh, they went to Spain, and he was a journalist and an international lawyer. And then when Franco and the fascists came in in 1936, they left Spain. They went to France. Then when the Nazis came to France, they came to the United States. And uh, uh, depending on what happens with Donald Trump and MAGA, I might be going back in the, <laughs> the other direction. Who knows? But uh, so so he you know he was he had a classic Europe you know basically French education at the lycée, and you know he was incredibly well read spoke five languages. My father was an amazing man. And I, I just grew up in a very literary household uh, and a very history conscious household, uh, science conscious household. He was a physicist. Uh, and so all of those enlightenment values were paramount in my in the home that I grew up in. And I always read a lot. I always liked writing. And then when I was you know 19 or 20 in college, I was an anthropology major and I wrote, a th- I was a very good long distance runner. And um, I, tra- I spent a summer training with the top Navajo, the Navajo are a na- native tribe in, in Arizona, uh, the top Navajo runners. They're, the Navajo are phenomenally good runners uh, and it's part of their culture and just genetically they're, they're very, very gifted. And I spent a summer training with their top runners and I wrote a thesis about Navajo long distance running. And um, at the end of that, it was the most exciting thing I'd ever done. At the end of that, I thought, wow, that's pretty close to journalism. Like I went somewhere, I researched it, and I wrote about it. And I turned reality into words that people could appreciate. And that to me was, it was just almost like ma- a kind of magic, like a sorcery. I couldn't believe that I, that I could do that and that I could do it quite well. You know, like I had definitely had a propensity for it. And so I, I got out of college. I did construction for a while. I waited tables. I did a number of things, but I started in on the long, the long complicated task of trying to become a successful uh, writer. Was, that was my next question. How did you make those first steps in the freelance world? And particularly, how did you make ends meet? Um, I read that you, you worked as a tree surgeon as well as construction and other kind of odd jobs. Yeah, I found this great job as a climber for tree companies. So I was working with a chainsaw on a rope, you know, 50, 100 feet up in the air, taking trees down, sort of from the top down, and uh, dangerous work if you make a mistake, and uh, which I did, and I and I got hurt, but it gave me the idea of writing about dangerous jobs, and so through my twenties, you know, I 
I sort of freelance for local publications. I didn't come close to earning a living at that. It was very frustrating and depressing. And I, and I, and I was trying to be, you know, a fiction writer, which was a complete catastrophe. And uh, started doing tree work, and I, hurt, I hit my leg with a chainsaw and, and took a while to recover from that. And I, I just thought, had this idea, why don't I write about dangerous jobs? You know, they don't, they don't get much consideration in this society. And this is back in the early 90s. And uh, I was living in a fishing town named Gloucester, Massachusetts, and a longtime fishing town. And I, I, I was there healing from my chainsaw wound when a Gloucester uh, longline boat, uh, sword fishing boat, went down off uh, the Grand Banks, a thousand miles out at sea in a huge, huge storm. And I just thought, maybe I'll write about that. And I wrote a, I wrote a section about it and sent it to a magazine and they, and they picked it up. They said, yeah, we'll publish it. And it was like a national magazine. That was a first for me. And, uh, and then that eventually got turned into my first book called The Perfect Storm. I think I remember reading somewhere that you said that you were kind of attracted to writing about these dangerous jobs because the environment you grew up in, the suburban American environment, seemed that either detached from that or had kind of pushed all of those professions and that kind of life beyond, beyond the ken of many of its inhabitants. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the suburbs are, are, are ghastly and soulless in all kinds of ways. And one of them is that they're removed from everything. Uh, I mean, they're completely unconnected from the complex society that, that, that supports them. And people aren't connected to each other. They have, you know, the neighbors don't know neighbors. There's no sense of community. There's no sense of the community be, being part of a wider, a larger organism that they depend on. I mean, it's just grotesque. In human terms, it's grotesque. And and I found it as a young man, as a teenager, I just found it appalling. For me, it's more of a class issue and not just a suburban issue. It's a class issue. Like people who do dangerous jobs are mostly working, young working class men. And they get killed at incredibly high rates doing this work. I mean, rates equivalent to some combat units, uh, depending on the industry. And But it's unbelievably dangerous. Logging, forest firefighting, commercial fishing, uh, you know, underwater diving, like uh, underwater uh, welding, rather. Uh, I, I mean, it's brutal. And firemen and soldiers sort of get all the glory. But, you know, these jobs, they're dirty working class jobs. And, and they're the, these guys who do these jobs are not venerated in any way. They're not even honored. They're not acknowledged. They, as I say in one of my something that I wrote, I can't remember. I was like, oh, you know, guys who drill for oil have a trouble getting a date in an oil town. You know, I mean, they just, they're at the bottom of the social hierarchy and the economic hierarchy and the nation completely depends on them, right? Like if those people stopped doing what they were doing, there'd be no gas, there'd be no wood, there'd be no fish, there'd be nothing, you know? And that's our, that's the sort of bizarreness of our society is that the people we need most generally get the least respect, um, the, the, the least um, congratulations, the, the least honor, uh, sort of honoring of their service. So I just thought, in the sort of grandiose way that 20-year-olds have, I was like, I'm going to write a book that fixes all that, you know, and I don't know, maybe I helped it a little bit. What was the process of turning that magazine article into a book, both in terms of the research that was required to expand the material, but also pitching it to a publisher and getting an agent and all of that kind of stuff? You know, I, you know weirdly, bizarrely, I already had an agent, uh, a, a guy who just seemed to like my writing and and. I managed to produce not a, you know, like <laughs> I didn't earn him a penny for years, years on end, you know, and uh, but he liked me and he liked my writing. And, you know, I, I the process of turning into, into a book was just I just had to do a whole lot more research. You know, I did research for a full year. Yeah, my advance was tiny. I mean, I got thirty thousand dollars, I think, to write the book. And it took me three years 
to finish researching it and write it. You know, so I, I kept working as a climber for tree companies to make because I, you know, it wasn't nearly enough money to live on. But that, you know, that kind of work kind of keeps you honest. I wasn't living in Gloucester anymore, but I would do tree work in Boston, and I drive up there, sort of covered in you know wood chips. Uh, you know, when you're operating a chainsaw at chest height in a tree, and you're sweating, like you just you just get covered in sawdust and wood chips. You know, I'd climb down out of the tree, and would get in the car and drive up to Gloucester, and I would stay. I had a place where I could stay above the bar, the crow's nest that these fishermen would hang out in. They they would rent rooms for thirty bucks a night, so I would like rent a room up above the bar and I just spend the night there talking to people and I, you know I was dirty I clearly worked all day and I think that that got me a certain amount of um, you know respect or you know acceptance anyway so I it was a long it was a long it was a long job and I you know I in between you know I, I, I wrote the article and then I wrote a proposal based on the article and then I went off to buy you know one of my crazy schemes was to become a war reporter uh, I mean I was like I got to figure something out because I'm 30 years old and this is not working right now so I there was a civil war in Bosnia and so I went off and got into Sarajevo which was a city under siege and I started working as a you know working in quotes I mean I made minuscule amounts of money but I but, but I, I entered into the world of war reporting and sort of learned those, learned that world and fell in love with it. And, you know, I, I got a fax from my agent, like, you have to come home, I sold your book. And I was extremely disappointed because I was really, really uh, enjoying, is a weird, weird word to use in a war, but I was really enjoying what I was doing over there. It felt very important and meaningful in the way that writing a book didn't. And But I came home and put in three years and, you know, find, you know eventually the perfect storm came out and, yeah, but as soon as I turned the manuscript in, I mean, literally the next day, I got on an airplane and flew to Delhi and on into Kashmir and then eventually into Afghanistan. So I was in Afghanistan in the summer of 96, right when the Taliban were taking over. And um, and so that was, you know, so I, I went back to war reporting, war reporting as fast as I possibly could. I really, that to me was felt like where I was meant to be headed. And The Perfect Storm was this huge hit, sold three and a half million copies, it was filmed, things like that. What? What was that experience like? And it's really interesting when we talk to writers on the show who've had these big successes, they often find it very difficult to, to say why that had happened or to work out what concatenation of factors had led to a, a book really breaking out. I mean, could you tell us about that experience, about why, why you think it happened and then what it was like riding that wave? You know, the publishing industry has very little idea what's going to sell. Uh, I mean, if they, if they knew better what would sell, they would make more money uh, and they would not buy books that sell at a loss, you know, like they, they haven't figured that out. So when I turned in the manuscript, I, you know, I thought it was a really good book. I, I, I didn't write it for a mind towards sales. I wrote it with a mind towards what's the most honest, compelling representation of the story I can possibly muster from myself. And my publisher, they, you know, they liked it, but no one went, oh my God, we have a, we have something on our hands. I mean, eventually they did, but um, so I don't know. I don't know. It's a well. I mean, if I can say this, I think it's a well-written book. It was a. It was a. I approached the story in a kind of interesting way because there was a, a mystery at the center of the story that would never be solved. The boat disappeared. So, but I handled that journal journalistically, without violating any journalistic rules. Now, I didn't fictionalize. I didn't. You know, like I sort of figured out how to tiptoe around that hole, and make the whole make that what we didn't know about the story actually dramatic and compelling you know the fact that we didn't know things i tried to turn into a source of drama and mystery and and with, without filling it in with my imagination or something ghastly 
like that. And that, um, I don't know, it, it, it was a particular time in America. I think I might have caught a wave of sort of like what, what was erroneously being called adventure journalism. Uh, they certainly weren't having an adventure out there. They're earning a living. Um, and maybe it's sort of like rising consciousness about uh, the class issues in America and some of these jobs that we depend on. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But it certainly worked like crazy. And the experience, I got to say, was very, very hard. Like, I, you know, I had um, enormous difficulty speaking in public. I just got horrific stage fright. You know, it was very painful being the center of all that attention. It made me extremely self-conscious, you know. Like, I, I mean, I wasn't, I did not enjoy it. I'll put it that way. I did it and it was work, but um, there were rare moments of enjoyment. Most of it I found like, um, you know, pretty arduous actually. It took me a long time to get comfortable speaking in public and even to start to enjoy it and be really good at it. And now I feel like I'm quite good at it and I quite enjoy it, and, you know, but that took many years. Did you have any anxiety as well about following up from a, from a hit like that? Or was the fact that you'd plunged yourself into war journalism kind of a remedy in its own in its own way oh it's totally a remedy i mean i i don't know if i had anxiety about it I, I mean i was completely sure that i couldn't follow up on that success and so i didn't feel like setting myself up for failure i didn't need the money that was being offered to me i mean i was single i was living in a you know sleeping on the floor in a one-room apartment in new york literally with a chainsaw by my bed because i was still doing tree work you know i i mean i like my needs were minimal. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't married. Uh, I'm not even sure I had a girlfriend. I mean, I like my needs were my needs were minimal. So I, the last thing I needed was you know another two year slog through a book that I already knew wouldn't couldn't possibly compete with compete with the perfect storm. So I went straight back into war reporting, uh, and you know then eventually, you know eventually went back to writing books, which are an enormous source of satisfaction and they're much more enduring than anything you might work in a do in a war zone for a, a you know a periodical. When the perfect storm came to be filmed, how how much involvement did you have in that, and what was the experience of of watching your work get adapted and then presented in a different way? Like, oh, you know, Hollywood doesn't really want any opinions at all from the writer. I mean, their their job's hard enough. Like, uh, so you know, I was on the set a few times just out of curiosity, particularly when they were in Gloucester. Uh, I was very concerned that they act well while they were in Gloucester, and uh, and they did. For the most part, they did, uh, um, and uh, so I, I, I had minimal involvement in that. Could we talk now about your journalism work from Afghanistan um, for Vanity Fair? How did that come about, and were you on contract or were you a member of staff? Our listeners like the specifics of how these arrangements work, so no detail is too minor. So after uh, okay, so after the perfect storm came out, I got a very nice letter from Graydon Carter, who had a who's the uh, executive editor of, of, uh, of Vanity Fair and uh, editor-in-chief, I don't know, whatever. He was the top guy at Vanity Fair, and he reached out to me as, and, and that sort of drew me in, you know? They were offering a lot of money and a lot of visibility, and he was like, I knew nothing about Vanity Fair. I was like, Vanity Fair? What the, what am I going to write about for them, you know? And, and he said, look, you can write about anything. I was like, really, anything? He said, yeah. One of the things we do is we publish articles that aren't within the public's perception of, of what Vanity Fair is. Yes, it's a glossy Hollywood-oriented rag. Yes, of course it is. But it's also these other things. And we do ser really serious journalism. So I was their guy, one of their guys, that did some really, really serious foreign reporting. And uh, I was in Kosovo in 1998 
you know, a buddy of mine that I knew from Sarajevo was like, hey, you might want to come over to Kosovo. Something's about to happen. And, uh, you know, indeed, I got there and things kind of blew up. And I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair about the coming war in Kosovo. And uh, and Graydon thought I was clairvoyant. Of course, I'm not clairvoyant. <laughs> I just had friends, friends who tipped me off to things who were in the trenches way more than I am. So I just kept, you know, I was in Sierra Leone in 2000. I got there and three days later, the, uh, this horrific civil war broke out. I mean, a, you know, a, the next phase of a horrific civil war. Uh, I was in Liberia in 2003, same thing happened. I got there and three days later, the country melted down, a terrifying experience. Uh, I was accused of being a spy by Charles Taylor and, and sort of had to go into hiding. I was eventually evacuated by the U.S. Embassy. It was pretty traumatic. And, and the suffering in that country when I was there was just hard to, still, still hard to talk about. Um, so, you know, I just kept doing things like that. And then in between, I was went back to book writing. Could we talk a bit about your process as a writer? Again, this is something we really like to get into on the podcast, particularly when you're doing a magazine piece or, or with a book. What is your your kind of reporting modus operandi? And then particularly when it comes to, to transferring that material, be it drafts or audio, in, you know, into the piece, do you... Do you file an outline to an editor and then work through that, or do you try and file clean at the first shot? Like, really, kind of, if you if you're happy, you just really lift the lid on what your your process is. So, the perfect storm and war required a lot of me being in certain places. I mean, my book War was about a platoon in combat, and I was with them off and on for a year in eastern Afghanistan. So, my reporting was the sort of classic notebook in the back pocket, tape recorder in hand absorbing an environment along with like real research into science into history my two most recent books are almost exclusively sort of what used to be called library research i mean you know i'm I'm not on the ground scribbling notes as things unfold around me i'm really drilling down into some serious academic and scientific and historical topics and assembling you know assembling something that's hopefully worth reading so my process, you know, basically is I do all of my reporting and I, I will hire a researcher. I'll tell them what I need. They'll sort of dig stuff up for me and send it to me. And I'll go through the footnotes and I go through, you know, read through everything and send them another round of stuff that I need. Um, it's faster than me doing it all myself. And, you know, I, I have the funds to do that. And it easily it, it easily sort of pays off uh, just in terms of me being efficient and, you know, on a deadline. I usually I fi- I'm almost completely finished with the research by the time I start writing and the writing process is interesting because it starts with this huge conceptual leap like you have this mountain of material and you have to organize it in your mind I mean you have to you have to br- you have to impose a sort of framework on it and an order to it so that you can write the book and um, that the sort of the basic breakdown of the structure of the book that sort of like blinding flash of insight for me doesn't happen when i'm sitting at my desk working you know and i don't know what's going to happen but i think about it and i think about it um my book war i remember i was really struggling with like if i did a chronological narrative most of the fighting was at the beginning of the was at the beginning sorry that's my cat's tail uh most of the fighting was at the beginning of the Deployment and then sort of petered out. If I do a chronological narrative, I mean, it's like, it's a terrible narrative, right? I mean, by the end, it's nothing's happening. Like, we, I can't do that. So I had to sort of figure out, 
I was like, okay, what are the primary experiences of war? I started to think, shift the paradigm. Like, what, what's a different way of organizing this? And I came up with this sort of tripartite uh, organization, which was the three primary experiences of war, as I experienced them, were fear, killing, and love. Love being the bond between combatants that allows them to sur survive physically and, psych and psychologically, emotionally, in that environment. Fear, killing, and love. So, you know, I had quite a lot of research and stories organized around those themes while tracking the sort of rough chronology of, of events in the Korogal. And I had that breakthrough, I think, on my, I don't drink anymore, but I, back then I did. I had second or third whiskey sitting in a bar by myself with a notebook and a pen. And that was my sort of favorite way of figuring out how to organize a book. I'd go to a very different environment. I'd have a couple of drinks. I tried to think very, very deeply. But the essence of the topic, not the topic itself, but the essence of the topic. Like, what is that? And um, likewise, my book, Freedom. Like, how do people maintain their freedom? They run away, they fight, or they, out, you know, they play chess. They outthink their opponent, you know, fear. So the equivalent of fear, killing, love would be run, fight, think, you know. So that, so that, that sort of, that conceptual leap, I have to be, I have to be in a very particular state of mind, and I don't even know how to begin thinking about it, but it finds me. And you can't think, you have to make yourself available in ways so you're not, when you think directly about something, in some ways, you can't see it like at night when if you look right at something you can't see it the way the rods in your eyes work if you look just to the side of something at night then you can see it if you look right at it you can't see it and i feel like there's the same the same thing happens with your sort of unconscious mind if you're thinking too hard about how should i structure the book you're not going to see it you have to be sort of sort of focus on something else that's adjacent to that and leave your mind open and your mind will know what to do and when writing how do you maintain a sense of objectivity. In a previous interview, you said, my favorite quote from someone else is, journalists don't tell people what to think, they tell them what to think about. How do you, in your own prose, keep that kind of clarity and that um, objectivity? I mean, there's many professions in our society that have to do that. I mean, judges have their own opinions about things, right? But they really try to keep those opinions out of their official duties. Uh, juries, likewise. Uh, sadly, prosecutors don't do that, but maybe they shouldn't. I don't know. But whatever. Like, I, I feel like there's um, one of the I mean, journalism is a kind of in some ways, I think of it as a kind of sacred task. Like society needs to know what's happening. And and as with doctors, you, know, you need to be able to trust the fact that the person giving you the good or bad news is trustworthy, that they don't have a dog in the fight, that they don't have an agenda. That when a doctor says, you know, unfortunately, you have cancer, that he doesn't own a piece of the, like, you know, the, the, the radiology company that's going to x-ray you or whatever. Like, I mean, you just have to trust that he, the doctor doesn't have an interest in this, right? And that what he's saying is true. And likewise with journalists. And I think one of the really sad things about journalism lately, uh, particularly on the right, but increasingly on the left, is that they've sort of abandoned that. And, you know, they, journalism now seems to be like high profile sort of like mega hosts ranting about how they feel about the news. It's grotesque. And and uh, I mean, there was even out in Afghanistan, there were journalists, there was an NBC journalist who was like constantly putting himself in front of the camera during firefights and stuff like he was some kind of the hero of all this. And I'm just like, I think, you know, like, what do you what do you think? You think this is all a show for you to 
a platform for you? You know, like this is horrific what's going on. <laughs> you know, like get out of the camera. But the but the news media, the the the, the, the um, television television media, cable media, um, they sort of monetize their businesses by turning people into like little action heroes and and celebrities. And I think it's grotesque. And so I, for me, I, I mean, uh, if I when I find myself trying to trying to arrive at a pre uh, at a sort of preordained conclusion like I'm, I'm I'm a liberal right I mean I'm left-wing I so my you know constantly I have to fight the desire to to have the data the data support my my assumptions right and I, I mean how do you do that you just you have to you have to love the truth more than you love your opinions I mean what can I say like if you don't then get out of the business and then by the way don't be a doctor either you know like do something else where it doesn't matter but uh, the consequences are enormous and um, uh, someone asked me what's the definition of a journalist and, and, and I said just sort of shooting from the hip I don't know where this came out of I said it's someone who will disappoint himself with the truth you know if you're willing to be disappointed by the truth you're a journalist and if you're not then you're you're something else Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the fascinating journalist, author and filmmaker, Sebastian Younger. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week we hear from the novelist Katie Kitamura on a time in her career she failed. I feel like my writing career is a constant string of failures. The question is, um, talk about a time when you failed in your writing career. You know, I when I start writing a book, I have this incredible excitement. It's like standing on an open plane and I think the possibilities of the book are limitless. And then as you write, it becomes further and further circumscribed until you have the final thing itself. And however successful a book may be in and of its own terms, I always feel that the kind of ghost or the the dream of what it could have been um, before it's been committed to that particular form. So in terms of the actual writing process, I think writing is constantly coming up against failure. Um, I think it takes a particular constitution to live with that failure on a daily basis. Um, And so it's, it's something that I live with daily. I think I imagine a lot of writers would say that. That was Katie Kitamura. And if you were interested in what Katie had to say, you can listen to our full interview with her via our website, www.alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Sebastian Younger. Could you tell us now about your partnership with Tim Hetherington, about how that came about initially and how that developed and also the the circumstances of, of Tim's death. Yeah, so I'd been in Afghanistan quite a lot. I was there in 96. I was there in 2000 with Massoud as he fought the Northern, as he and the Northern Alliance fought the Taliban al-Qaeda. I was there in 2001 when his forces overran Kabul, liberated Kabul from the Taliban. And, um, you know, it, it all seemed like, you know, after the Taliban were a paper tiger and they folded very, very quickly. And everyone thought the war was over. And then George Bush, President Bush, sort of moved on to Iraq and left Afghanistan unattended, and the Taliban moved into the vacuum. And so by 05, I was like, wow, this war is going to last for a while. I, I, I want to do something I've never imagined wanting to do, which is to, is to be embedded with American soldiers and see what it's like to 
fight in Afghanistan as an American. What a strange idea, you know? So I did that and I really, really liked the experience. I thought the guys I was with were amazing. Um, and uh, it was all men. It was a combat infantry unit, so it was all men. And, uh, and I just thought if, if, they go, if these same guys, if the same unit goes back to Afghanistan, I had wanted nothing to do with Iraq. I thought Iraq was a travesty. But Afghanistan, I, I thought we could do some good there. The war made sense to me. I understood it. And I thought we could do a lot of good. And so I thought if they go back to Afghanistan, I want to I chronicle them for a, for a whole deployment, one platoon, for a whole deployment. And indeed, they went back to Afghanistan. And so I started following them. And after, on my second trip there, I needed a good photographer. And Vanity Fair came up with Tim. And I interviewed him and I liked him and I said we might be shooting some video as well because my idea was to write a book about this platoon and to shoot a lot of video. And at the end of it, I was like, maybe maybe I can make a documentary. I had no idea how to do that. But I was like, you know, you can't take notes during a firefight anyway. They're illegible and you look silly. You know, the only only reasonable thing to do during a firefight other than take cover, you know, is to shoot video. So I'll just shoot a lot, ton of video and I'll interview the guys and didn't seem that hard, you know, so I started doing that. And then Tim came on my second trip out there. Tim came with me to shoot stills for Vanity Fair. And because uh, we were do I was doing an articles as well. And and I sort of convinced him he saw what a great opportunity it was. And I definitely needed a call, you know, a partner for my film idea. So he was all in. And we, you know, we we were fast friends, you know, almost immediately. And um, and we were in a lot of combat together. And that makes you quite close quite quickly. And and uh, so then he, about halfway through the deployment, he went back there. I tore my Achilles tendon in combat. So I needed to rest. I needed to heal up for a bit. So he took the next trip, and that was in October of 07. And so he started shooting shooting video about halfway through the, the deployment. And, uh, and he broke his leg. And so he came back with the camera, and I took the camera on the next trip. I got blown up. I was in an IED, and I got blown up. But the camera was rolling when I got blown up, and it, it, the Restrepo starts with that, um, some of those images, and uh, and then we just kept alternating or going there together, you know, depending on who was injured and you know whatever, and and then we then we started the hard part, which was you know making a film. We hired a great director. All of it came out of our pocket. We spent I don't know, at least three hundred three hundred fifty thousand dollars of our own money making this film, and eventually um, sold it to National Geographic. And uh, so we were full on. We shot all the video together. We were the directors, co-directors, co-producers. We had an amazing editor, and but uh, you know, otherwise it was completely our project, and we were very, very proud of it. How do you find working with film as a medium versus words? I guess. Oh, it's like, what would you rather do? You know, eat a good dinner or go surfing? You know, I mean, it's like they're both <laughs> they're both necessary, but they're both enjoyable and 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 worthy. You know, so I. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I love working with words, you know, and when I started shooting video, it opened up a different part of my brain and I really, really enjoyed exploring, exploring that. If I'd had to choose, if you had to choose between surfing and eating, you know, I, I you choose eating, I suppose, like I would have to choose writing, but, uh, but fortunately you don't. And one of the interesting things about film is now, your amygdala is one of the most primitive parts of your brain, and it's there to guard you to sort of like uh, react quickly to threats. So, if you hear a loud noise or a sudden movement, your amygdala makes your body re react before your conscious brain sort of knows what's going on, right? 
and uh, there's a startle reflex, there's all this stuff, and then the amygdala is the thing that triggers that. So what's really interesting is if you're reading a book and you know something goes bang, you know there's an explosion described in the book, your amygdala, it, your amygdala is not involved. Like your brain doesn't think that you're in a firefight in Afghanistan if you're reading a book. And you might experience all kinds of emotions, but you don't think you're there, right? When you're watching a movie, your brain thinks you're there. Your amygdala reacts as if it's actually in a dangerous situation. And you get all these mirror neurons going on with other, with other people's emotions, you know, anger and fear and sorrow. So your brain is getting tricked into thinking it's actually in that situation. So the advantages of that are immediacy, right? I mean, it's an extraordinarily immediate human experience. The disadvantages is that you can't deliver a lot of information in a film. The amount of information in a book is astronomical compared to the sort of information units in a film. So they're just for different things. And and when you put them together, like my book War and my film Restrepo, then you get, a, a, you know, an extraordinary sort of like, uh, you know, every human sense is attended to, every intellectual, all your intellectual curiosity is satisfied. I mean, it really is a kind of complete package that was enormously satisfying to work on. What are your feelings now about covering conflict? You said, it, I think after Tim died, it was a decision that you to step away from that. And what do you feel the the personal and the, the emotional toll of that kind of work has been? And how does that, on one side of the balance, sit against the fulfillment or you know the professional and personal satisfaction or excitement that's come from it? Yeah, when Tim died, I was about to turn 50, and, and I, did, I saw what his death did to everyone around him who loved him. And I just thought, you know, all of a sudden war reporting seemed rather selfish. It didn't seem heroic and noble. It seemed selfish. Like you're not gambling with your life. You're gambling with the lives, in some ways, the, the emotional lives of everyone who loves you. And that seemed like a, a selfish choice to make. And so I just decided I was married. It was my first marriage. Um, and, you know, in conversation with my wife at the time, Daniela, uh, I just decided I wasn't going to do any more war reporting. And she, and she correctly pointed out, you know, I mean, we, we got, she adored Tim, you know, as well, Daniela did. And, and we got the news about him, you know, the phone rang in, in the apartment, like our landline in our apartment in New York, the phone rang and we got the news. And she said, you know, if not, even if nothing happens to you, and chances are it won't, every time that when you're gone, every time the phone rings, I'm going to think it's that call, right? So... It doesn't, there doesn't even have to be a bad outcome for, you know, my wife to have like a really miserable experience while I'm off having a good time, you know, whatever. Like, so that seemed juvenile and selfish. And I decided to stop war reporting, which, you know, in some ways was great because war reporting is an easy, in some ways it's quite easy. It's just inherently dramatic. It is not that hard to, to write or produce films about war that, that are attention getting because war is attention getting. And so when I stopped war reporting, I had this sort of identity crisis of like, well, who am I then? And then I, you know, that forced me into some much richer terrain intellectually and personally and emotionally. Um, that marriage ended. And, you know, one of the, you asked about the consequences of, of war reporting. Um, you know, they're huge. The consequences of trauma are huge. And you can be traumatized in all kinds of ways. Car accidents, deaths of loved ones. Life is painful for everybody eventually, and war reporting, definitely painful. And uh, I had, you know, I had a, I for years had been struggling with some fall, psychological fallout from war reporting. And I first didn't, I had no idea what it was. I thought I was, something was wrong with me. 
you know, I kept having panic attacks and I would get depressed and quite angry. I mean, I just things that were very out of character. And I, did, I, I didn't understand what was happening. And, you know, finally it was sort of explained to me, like you're having, this is trauma. This is, you're, you're reacting to trauma. And um, Liberia was particularly horrific. That was particularly hard hard for me. And, and, uh, um, and I, I, after Tim was killed, like I just had this avalanche of, of, of reactions sort of trauma reactions and I you know wound up breaking up my marriage I mean I, I went I became extremely depressed depressed and angry and and I wouldn't say suicidal but I could see how people could be I could suddenly I could understand that way of thinking about oneself and um and I and I knew I was in trouble when I started thinking wow Tim was the lucky one like he got you know he got taken out of here before life turned really painful like, and I have to go through the whole friggin' thing. Like, he, he's the lucky one. And when I, when I realized I was thinking that, I realized I really had a problem. And uh, my marriage broke up, and a lot of things changed in my life. And, you know, I remarried, and I have a wonderful partner and, and a wonderful family. I have two little girls, and I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't think of going to your war zone. I mean, I wouldn't think of crossing, you know, running across Houston Street in traffic. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, my duty is to my girls and to my wife. Like I have, I mean, there's no other consideration. I, I have to stay healthy and alive for them. And there's nothing, there is nothing that I, the only risk I would run would be a, a risk I would have to run to protect them. There's absolutely no other risk I would ever run for any reason at all. Well, that sounds like a, a very challenging period. And thank you for talking to us about it with such candor. Um, did those experiences of conflict, particularly the brotherhood uh, element, influence your decision to write Tribe? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that was very painful about my experience in the Korangal was how good it was. And that when you leave, you lose, a you lose access to that. And what was good about it was that for the first time in my life, I felt like I was part of an organic group that was in a survival situation where more or less everyone was... Uh, primarily focused on the survival of the group and the welfare of the group, and th you know that, you know that duplicates our human origins quite closely. And uh, that kind of when you override individual concerns for the concern for the welfare of the group, what you're actually doing is allowing giving the individuals a greater chance of surviving. I mean, a group that's functioning as a group rather than a group of individuals uh, is way more adapted for survival a, a platoon in combat that's like that is tactically speaking is is way more pro, way more proficient everyone's chances of survival go way up ironically you stop thinking about yourself and your chances of surviving go up because suddenly you're in a group where you're maximizing its ability its capabilities and the there's a lot there are a lot of neurochemical rewards for being in a situation like that and then you lose that and it's incredibly demoralizing, incredibly depressing in ways that you don't even understand at first. Um, and I, um, and then I just looked around myself at this society and I just thought, oh my God, this is inhuman. Like humans are, we're, we're social primates. We live in groups. And in modern society, we're so affluent, we're so wealthy. We have uh, relegated the, the threats and the hardships of daily life as humans have known them for hundreds of thousands of years. We've relegated them to the periphery of our experience. We've mechanized everything. We've solved most of our survival problems with technology. 
And as a result, we don't need each other. In an immediate daily sense, we don't need each other to survive, to feed ourselves, to shelter ourselves, protect ourselves. And that's, you know, I started looking into it. I was like, that's one of the reasons that affluent societies have the highest rates of suicide and depression and postpartum depression and PTSD and addiction and everything else. Like, those are the wealthiest societies that have those high rates. And the lower, you know, the, 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 the poorer the society, broadly speaking, the poorer the society, the lower the rates of suicide and depression and PTSD. And, you know, I think that's because poorer societies, you know, poverty forces people to collaborate. And th that, there's a stress in that, but there's also an incredible psychological buffer. I mean, people are buffered from their psychological troubles um, very effectively by being part of a group. And that's one of the things they found, say, during the Blitz in London, as, is during those terrible, you know, I mean, 30,000 civilians were killed over six months. I mean, the German Air Force was pounding England and pounding London, you know, virtually every night with air raids. And um, admissions to psych wards went down during that time because people felt needed and they were able to buffer themselves against their sort of psychological demons. Changing tax slightly, um, it's a rule of the podcast that we always talk about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives. So be as candid or as guarded as as, as you're comfortable with. But you you know you've alluded to this this period in your twenties when you know you were kind of broke doing doing tree surgery to to pay the big hit with the book, putting a lot of your own money in, into Restrepo. How throughout your writing life has has the financial side worked? I mean, it doesn't affect my. I mean. It doesn't affect my writing at all. I mean, good writing is good writing. Bad writing is bad writing. My desire is to be a good writer, to write well about important topics. And I, I mean, I would do that if I was flat broke or enormously wealthy, and I'm, I'm neither. Uh, so it has nothing to do with my writing. It, it, I mean, you know, I now I own property. I have a mortgage. I have a family. I, you know, I got divorced, so I gave all my money away, you know, or most of it anyway, because uh, I was very very concerned that my ex-wife, who I'm very fond of, and we're still good friends, I really wanted to make sure that, you know, that she would be okay, you know, and, uh, and I just like, if I can't earn this money again, then it's my, my bad, you know, my, it's my problem. So, I, you know, my relationship with money is, is very, um, I don't think much of it. Certainly, my human relations trump financial concerns, like, every single time. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm a fairly happy person. That said, I have to pay, I have to pay bills, you know, like everybody else, and so, you know, I have to sort of sign up, book, you know, sign book contracts and pump books out, you know, fairly regularly. I think I average a book every five years, which which seems to keep me afloat. So I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. Well, we're coming towards the end of our time, so as a final question from me, um, could you tell us about the book that you are working on at the minute called Pulse? Yeah. So. About a year and a half ago, I've, I had a, a really extraordinary and terrifying and dangerous medical experience. I, I've always been very healthy. I was an athlete when I was young. I run, uh, I run a lot. I'm fit. Um, I've never thought about my health or my longevity in any way, you know, ever. I never, never had a reason to. And one day, a year and a half ago, I felt a sudden pain in my abdomen. And um, within a few minutes, I couldn't stand up. I was losing consciousness. And I didn't realize, but I had an undiagnosed asymptomatic aneurysm in my pancreatic artery, which is this little artery in your abdomen. And no one thinks much about it. And, but I had an aneurysm in it, a ballooning of the artery, just for congenital reasons. And uh, totally unrelated to any health issue, just a kind of freak 
an atomical anomaly and it ruptured, it burst. And I started bleeding out uh, into my own abdomen. And um, of course, if I had a gunshot wound, that amount of blood would have made sense. I'd be like, oh my God, I'm bleeding out of my gunshot wound. But there was no, there was no wound. I had no way to know what was happening. It was all pooling in my abdomen. And uh, I lost two thirds of my blood. And by the time they got me to the hospital, 90 minutes later, it took an hour and a half to get to the hospital. I was basically on the threshold of death. I was still conscious, but my pulse was, my blood pressure was 60 over 40, and I was on the way out the door. And um, right at the end, I felt myself getting pulled into this dark pit underneath me. And the, the doctor was, the, the doctor was busy cutting my neck open to put a, a line into my, into my jugular to get enough blood into me to save my life. And so he's doing that. And he, this pit opened up under me and I started to get pulled down into the pit and my dead father appeared to welcome me. You know, I'm an atheist. My dad was a physicist. He was an atheist. I'm not religious. I don't believe in anything. You know, I, I mean, I believe in the human spirit and I believe in human love, but I don't believe in anything mystical or supernatural, any of that stuff. And my, there, was, there was my dead father welcoming me and I didn't know I was dying. I had no idea I was dying. I was just shocked to see him and I was like, we got nothing to talk about, man. I, I like, I'll see you in twenty or thirty years, but I we got I got nothing to say to you right now, and and I said to the doctor, but I didn't know I was dying, but I knew something very serious was happening, and I said to the doctor, you got to hurry, you're losing me right now. It was the last thing I said, and um, they pulled me back from the brink, and uh, it took them eight hours. I'm a healthy guy. I, I, I didn't um, experience cardiac arrest. I didn't, you know, my body, I, my body was strong enough to give them something to work with. They finally found the leak. They, they embolized it with a catheter uh, and it took hours and hours and I was sort of in and out of consciousness. I was in incredible pain and they couldn't give me any, any anesthesia, um, you know, because I, I, my vital signs were so low, it would have killed me. And, um, they did it. They saved my life, and my little girls have a father now. And I'm, so I'm writing a book called Pulse about, like, what happens, what 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 keeps us alive, and what happens when we die. Um, is that what they're called NDEs, near death experiences? Like they're they're quite similar all around the world, um, and they and and there isn't really a good medical explanation for them. Um, not to say that all of a sudden I believe in God or anything, but but they're. You know, they, they, there is not a good explanation, and so I'm, I'm going to write a the kind of book that my father, the, my physicist father, would respect about what the hell he was doing there, <laughs> uh, and uh, and a lot of related things. It's the final thing for me because we're right against our time limit. You, is it right then that this particular experience of of seeing your ancestors, like you saw your father, that that is pan cultural? That that seems to occur around the world in different religious context, different cultural context. Yeah, that's one of the common experiences to see dead relatives. Um, often there's a tunnel of light or a dark hole, a dark, a, a dark space that you're getting pulled into. Um, you know, there's about a dozen things that are quite common, but one of the most common experiences is seeing dead relatives. And they, you can't reproduce that. Like, I mean, people, when they're dying, they release ketamine into their brain, which is a hallucinogen. Um, people that take ketamine don't see dead relatives. I mean, they have all kinds of crazy visions that endogenous DMT, oxygen deprivation, you know, all these things that happen to a dying person. 
like if you reproduce those symptoms in someone who's not dying, they don't see their dead ancestors. And it's really, it's almost as if the body, I mean, either, either there's some kind of afterlife that we don't understand, uh, and the dead can materialize in some form in some other dimension that the dying can perceive. It's possible. I mean, I, you know, of course I have no idea, you know, or there's some unconscious understanding by the body that you're dying, even if you've never died, you know, died before. Like there's some unconscious understanding and it creates hallucinations that, um, uh, that otherwise would never ever create. And you know, one of the interesting things is that people who have been blind from birth, when they die, when they have these near-death experiences, they have visions, they see things. And they don't dream in visions, they don't hallucinate when they take in visions, they don't hallucinate with visions when they take drugs, but they have visions when they die. And it's an extraordinary, mis mysterious, mysterious thing that I want to find out more about. Well, it sounds completely fascinating and I look forward to reading it. And thank you for your time, Sebastian, and good luck with everything going forward. My pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. That was your Take Notes interview with Sebastian Younger. He's on Twitter at Sebastian Younger. He has a website, sebastianyounger.com, and his latest book, Freedom, is published by Fourth Estate. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Sebastian? I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I've... I've never met Sebastian, but I've corresponded with him um, for almost a decade, I suppose. He was very helpful with uh, my book on the army from before it was a thing and then also when it uh, it ran into difficulties. Um, and I've, I've read his work for a long time. So I thought it was very interesting to kind of hear about his career, but also as with a number of writers we've had on the show to, to kind of probe underneath a, a massive initial success, you know, what it was like with The Perfect Storm that he went from this kind of fairly hand-to-mouth magazine writer lifestyle to having this smash hit and this movie and then almost trying to to get away from that by going off and and covering conflict and then this sort of other turn that he's, he's sort of now taken in his life from moving away from that what about you Rachel yeah I really admired and was moved by his honesty when describing the sort of psychological effects of his war reporting I guess the, the role of the war reporter can be glamorized. It's not always, but he was, it was refreshing that he kind of pierced that mystique. Um, and he was also another guest that combined writing with filmmaking um, to great success and enjoyed a multifaceted career. Anyway, what have you been up to, Rachel? I'm thrilled to announce that a couple of weeks ago, the Portuguese feminist piece was finally published. <laughs> um, so just in case any listeners wanted to hold me accountable, it was written and was published. Um, so that was good. And now starting a novel for potential review and the aforementioned profile pieces slash other things coming up over the summer. How about you, Simon? Very exciting. Um, I worked all weekend to get a uh, magazine piece done, but I got it done um, and filed it um, yesterday. And I also got another round of edits done on my proposal. So it felt a kind of... Um, 
actually a real sort of sense of relief from having got those two things off my desk. So I've just just had a nice day off today in the sun, which is very pleasant. Um, and then kind of just just working out. I've got to do another edit this week, but then working out what uh, the next steps are, bits of work. So so it's good, but I felt a bit of a yeah, a bit of a breakthrough with those. Excellent. Anyway. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram under Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.